Hello and welcome to the Trapital Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Runcie. Today is one of my favorite episodes that I do. This is the Trapital Mailbag Podcast, where I answer questions from Trapital members, and this time I extended it to folks on the Trapital community number. And I love this episode because folks always send in great questions, and those questions have extended beyond this podcast. Some of them have sparked articles. Some of them have sent me down rabbit holes of research or just rabbit holes of my own curiosity. So it's always great to be able to connect, hear what folks are thinking, and engage with the people that make Trapital possible. Let's go to our first question. It's from my guy Ernest from Chicago. He asked if direct-to-consumer acts are faring better than the tier one artists like Drake in the current rap world. And if you've been releasing everything from your house as is, then this really hasn't affected your plans too much, right? So I'll say yes and no. So I'll say yes because there is something to be said for the nimbleness of the artist that is, as we speak, recording music from their apartment or from their home, which is what they were doing four months ago, which is what they were doing a year ago. So they necessarily haven't skipped a beat. With that said, someone like Drake or any of the other top tier artists, they still know how to do this. And they've worked their bread and butter by making music when they're on the go. I believe that most of Drake's Thank Me Later and perhaps even some of the more recent projects that he's put out were recorded either in hotel rooms or in his home studio. I believe that Kanye West had recorded a bunch of his most recent projects, I think Jesus is King and Ye on his iPhone. So the top tier superstars are nimble and that's great. What I will say though, and I think this is where things separate though, is that the smaller indie artists that aren't necessarily tied to big labels can just make things happen and be more nimble in general. If you are an artist that you have the direct relationship with your fans, you're solely independent, it's on you to put out the music whenever you want. You don't necessarily have to work through a big timeline that you have or see where something fits on the roadmap or have all these intersectional pieces of this grand rollout that was going to include this user-generated content play that you had through TikTok, which was going to spark from this video that you had because you were going to meet up with this Instagram influencer, that you were going to film a visual album for everything. A lot of those artists, like let's say your Beyonce's or your Rihanna's that you expect to have these grand plans, they're the ones that I think are being especially affected by this. Their work ends up needing to now be reduced to what the person that can easily record music out of their hotel room or out of their bedroom have. So all these megastars have the in-home studio, so they can still do a lot of the same things that your smaller indie acts do. I do think that the artists that were already doing their work are faring a little bit better just because they had less expectations and they can move things remotely. But now it's the artist who had grand plans and all these other things that they need to do. They're the ones that need to change their game up the most right now. Our next question is from Jeff from Canada, who asked, democratization of beat making has affected what the super producer can charge. In the blog era, it was half a million for a beat from Timbaland or Pharrell. What do the economics permit super producers of today to quote? 
I always enjoy this question. I've written an article about it, but I do think that a few things have changed. The era that Jeff is referring to, if we go back to the mid-2000s when Timbaland and Pharrell, there was so much concentrated power for the super producers that having them was one of the strongest cosigns that you could have in music. Therefore, they could get those big advances. They could also get the royalties for the money that the song ends up making further down the road. Think about all of the big artists that came through, whether it was your Jay-Z or your Ja Rules, 50 Cent, Lil' Kim, Missy Elliott, all the artists that were big, all of them worked with Timbaland and Pharrell. So when you have that much power, you're able to just make so much more. And music and beats weren't the technology wasn't there to just send them back and forth as easily and as crisp as it is today. But now and that's what Jeff's referring to in the era of BeatStars, which is a marketplace for producers. And artists themselves, superstar artists, are finding quality beats that in many ways can sound just as good or no different than what you may hear from one of these super producers. That lowered the amount that a Mike Will or a Zaytoven or some of these other producers can have. I mean, the max that you've heard from rumors in the street is that Mike Will is one of the ones that can still get that six-figure check, upwards of 100000 A few of the other ones can too. But you've also seen the economics of it shift a bit as well. Some producers may be less likely to want to get the big advance if that means that they could get a higher percentage from the royalties. I mean, it's no different than you're trying to bet on yourself, right? This is one of the closest things that the industry gets in terms of whether you want to take the cash up front or if you want to have a bit of equity in the stake to be able to earn alongside. The other thing that changed a little bit with the producers, especially this past decade, is that we went through these like 18 to 24 month runs where there was a hot producer that was literally on everything and then things cooled off for a minute. So as I mentioned, Mike Will, I think he's been one of the ones that had stuck around much longer, but you had Metro Boomin that was in and out of producing himself over the decade. DJ Mustard went back and forth, and of course, when him and YG were on top and they were best friends, things were good, but when their relationship fractured, things started to go downhill. You had the run where Lex Luger was on everything. Um, you had the run where Tay Keith was on everything. That was more recently, like a couple years ago, but I haven't heard Tay Keith on every bar and every ad-lib intro the same way that you did back then. So these things, so the landscape's definitely changing. Even if you are one of the top producers, your life as a top producer may not be as long as a Timbaland and Pharrell. I'd probably say that it's more likely that it isn't. Mike Will came in at the last tail end of that where you could really make a claim for yourself and he's obviously still getting big projects he had done that creed soundtrack a couple years ago and i still do believe that he's viewed as one of the top ones there but yeah so much has really changed from though from that era and i think what we see now is that your big producers yeah they can still get the a six-figure check, but we're talking low six figures, no longer half a million. And if they can get the money, they're more likely to try to see what they can negotiate based on the future royalties on that. The next question is from Darth Jones from Brooklyn. He asked if a case study could be done on Takashi 69's career from a marketing and branding perspective. The easy answer is yes. Takashi 69, whether you 
like, whether you like this guy, whether you dislike this guy, whether you find him as just a clout chasing, whatever, he clearly has shown and demonstrated his ability to get views, get people following what he's doing, and he will set records by doing that. He has the most viewed Instagram live stream concurrently with 2 million views. He did his Instagram live last week. It was his first time giving a public message since coming out of jail. This was his tell-all on why he decided to snitch. And he justified his rationale for those that care about his justification. He got 2 million people. That is more than double what anyone else has been doing from their versus battles. You look at the most popular one so far, Jill Scott and Erica Badu still got less than 750,000. They still didn't cross that three quarter million mark, but you can see how big of a event that was. Takashi 69 more than doubled that. Honestly, probably got close to tripling that number. That's how much attention he's able to get. I just checked on YouTube as well because I know he always bragged about having one of the most watched Breakfast Club interviews. He has the number one and number fourth most watched interview on YouTube for the Breakfast Club. Whether or not on either of these platforms, these are quality views or people that actually are vested in him as an artist, that's debatable. I hear you. I think that he obviously understands that there is clout and the antics and people are more there for all of the wild things that he might say and how he carries himself less than a true passionate fan. But that does say a lot about how he as an artist relates to the people that he is a celebrity for. We almost have to extend the framework of what we call him because some people can follow him and watch his every move and would never actually stream to listen to his music. It's really this divergence of fame versus talent in hip hop. And I think he is one of the people that leans much more towards that fame and whether or not people find him talented is truly a secondary thing because he's able to generate these views, get get this attention from all of the clout chasing type things that he's done. And from a marketing and branding perspective, that does have power. So many artists are extending their business models and extending how they make money beyond the record label deal. And so much of it is based on their presence and the amount of people that follow what they do and eyeballs. If we're looking from a pure metrics perspective, Takashi 69 has high engagement, has high views on all these platforms. So if you want to reach the type of person that is the profile of a Takashi 69 follower, you have a pretty good chance reaching him if you can have him market your stuff or have him as a brand ambassador and so on. I know that the notion of that will definitely frustrate many hip hop purists and other people that just can't stand for the fuckboy shit or any of the clout chasing things that he does, but it is what it is. This is the era that we live in and he has branded himself in a way to be able to have the tens of millions of followers and the tens of millions of views and the people that follow what's, what he does. So I do think that there is some additional things that could be explored there. I should also mention that the pump plan and concepts like that about how to have a clout chasing artist create fame for themselves, Takashi69 is one of the most shining examples of this.
Our next question is from Matthew from Toronto. Canada's coming in strong today. Two questions from Canada. But Matthew wants to know, what are my thoughts on Tory Lane's quarantine radio going from Instagram to his new YouTube deal for his at-home concert series? So I'm sure as most of you know, Tory Lane's has made quite a name for himself over the past few months since the quarantine started. His quarantine radio has been an internet sensation. He has grown his following. He was able to use the heightened fame and interest to launch his mixtape. So he was able to get out of his record label deal. He set records at the time for Instagram Live. He's on the short list of the people that I'm calling the all quarantine first team. These are the five people that have demonstrated the most amount of success and the most amount of come up during the quarantine and make the most of the opportunity. I'll probably evaluate a few of the others. Another person I would definitely add to that list is Travis Scott, just given how much success he had with Fortnite. There's a couple of Travis Scott questions coming later, so we can talk more about that then. Tory Lanez, yeah, he has a unanimous spot on that all-quarantine first team. With that said, everyone was wondering what type of business opportunities there would be for Tory after this. Instagram Live, as I've written about in my articles, it's great as in what I'll call an MVP, right? It's great as your minimum viable product if you want to put something that has the potential to have legs as a live stream product and see how much attention you could get on Instagram Live. How strong is your following? Based on the tools that you use, based on how the audience connects to you, it can make sense to then extend to another platform and likely as you use that platform, other stronger platforms will gain attention. And I think that's exactly what happened with you. YouTube. YouTube has money, YouTube wants content creators, and YouTube has a pretty big hip-hop focus with all of the recent moves that it's done in the past few years. They want to be able to extend deals to people like Tory Lanez. The one potential challenge, though, is that even though YouTube does have a pretty strong live presence, I still think that YouTube Live is seen more so for live programming that would come from a traditional outlet and not necessarily someone like Tory Lanez. But that's even from a pretty narrow perspective. I think most of us still think is YouTube as a place to be able to consume static video content. There's something that is to be said for the organicness of you're watching this in real time, the same time that Tory Lanez is doing all of his ridiculous antics that made it so unpredictable and fun on Instagram Live. And I'm not sure if that can be captured in the same way on YouTube, just because that's not how a lot of people view the platform. Instagram has branded itself as this ephemeral social media product. You go there, you want to see what's happening most recently, If you want to see what's been specially curated, you could do that by looking at someone's post, but you want to go to stories to see what's latest in the past 24 hours. You want to click again if something's happened more recently, and if something's happening live, that is the best version of this because you're literally watching something in real time. YouTube is very different. You have very strong production studios and media companies that have established presence there. And how does Tory Lanez quarantine radio work if it's something that is a bit more established as opposed to the rawness that I think makes it what it is? It's going to be interesting. I think the biggest question is, how does the content itself change? Is he thinking about how he may shift things? 
it's hard to call YouTube a complete knock. I think it still has the biggest video streaming audience in the entire world in terms of the amount of hours spent, the amount of eyeballs that are there. Tory Lanes does have much more of a North American and Western focus. I think there's an opportunity here to extend his brand. So let's see where it goes. Our next question is from Ryan from Houston. He wants to know, from a fan's perspective, artists make all their money from touring. So besides what Travis Scott did recently, what is their plan? For a lot of people, this is the elephant in the room right now. It's the harsh reality. Artists can try all of the live streams that they want, all of the cutesy ways to try to make the most of doing what they have to do. Of course, I'm sure everyone has seen artists going on OnlyFans to try to make money there, or artists like Black China that are trying to sell their time with fans for Instagram follows or FaceTimes. Artists are definitely trying to get creative, but at the end of the day, there's nothing that can truly replace that touring and festival bag. It is deep, there's a lot of money in it, and a lot of artists built their business on that money. I actually want to read a quote from Young Thug who has struggled considerably during this. And I don't think he's alone. I think he's just one of the ones that is speaking much more on this. This is from an interview that he did with Billboard. He said, the money that I get for the shows, let's just say I get 500,000 per show. If I don't do these 10 shows, that's five M's. Then I don't make 5 million till June, and then I might spend a million. I might spend 2 million just on this quarantine shit. I got my mommy and daddy. I'm like, man, y'all stay in the house. They say, yeah, they get tired of their house they every week, and now they want a penthouse suite at a hotel. That shit costs more money. However much money I lose on the show, that's probably the same amount of money I lose spending my money. And I do not think he's alone in that. I think that is the reality for a lot of artists that, yeah, the millions can quickly add up, especially if you've lived this life where things are based on you having high money coming in from things like that. And that traces back to the first question, right? If you're a superstar artist, you've definitely elevated both your own personal lifestyle and your business operations to live on a more outsized budget that relies on that touring revenue. and that doesn't come in, things have to change. I do think that artists will continue to find ways to be creative, but at some point, the economy does become a bit of a zero-sum game. Unemployment is at its highest that it's been in years in the U.S. So if that money isn't coming from the fans who are supporting these concerts, then where exactly is it going to come from? There's only so many businesses that may want to be able to partner with these artists. I think I may have mentioned this in a recent article. One of these streaming services, uh, I'm talking specifically about the video streaming services like your Netflix or your Hulu, they're likely in a bit of a crunch themselves because they might not necessarily have enough content on the backlog depending on how long their production operations are stalled because of this virus. And if that's the case, how can they find ways to adapt and still create plenty of new content? I know Netflix has tons of content, so they might be fine, but some of these less powerful video streaming services may have a few options. Is there a way to partner with an artist to do some type of live streaming 
or reality show that they film from their house, the content from that ends up being sold to an Amazon or being sold to a Hulu. I think there's a few different options that something like that could take. But still, even if that bag comes in, only your superstar artist would be deemed worthy of getting a eight-figure check from a streaming services for a pseudo-documentary, pseudo-reality show, pseudo-documercial on their life. Things are going to get real, real quick. I think that the Young Thug experience is legitimate, and I think that a number of other artists are in that boat. Yeah, it's, it's going to get tough. The other thing that I'll add to this, too, is that the fans of hip-hop music and the people that want to see these artists in concert and would be willing to see them perform live, they are going to be much more hesitant to go back into an arena and go back into a music festival and fill those venues up. It's going to be very different than other genres of music. This past week, Live Nation came out and said, we are ready to open up our concerts and our venues as soon as it is legal to do so by different states. The two states that have done this so far are Arkansas and Missouri. They have enabled some type of either social distancing concert or drive-throughs or some other type of in-person experience to be able to start recouping some of that venue and get artists back in. The thing is, that's more likely to attract the country artist crowd as opposed to hip-hop. We think about where this music is popular, and we also think about what the polls are saying about who is most likely to want this country to open up. Hip-hop artists are much more likely to lean a bit more liberal, and liberals in the United States are much more hesitant to open the country back up as opposed to conservatives. There's a much higher percentage of conservatives that are country fans. Therefore, if there is a Kenny Chesney concert and a Drake concert happening on the same nights, which of those do you think is most likely to be at capacity? It's most likely to be the Kenny Chesney concert because those fans probably have more frustrations with how things are currently being governed and they have different opinions about this virus and so on. This is not going to be a podcast that breaks down the politics of the coronavirus, but to the extent that it affects music opening, I think it's important for people to understand that and also where this may be heading moving forward. Next question is from Darnell from New York. He asked, how can we get music label executives to see the value of revamping the 360 deal for their monetary benefit to become the 360 deal that also benefits artists? I think that the goal of this would be to make 360s less predatory for the artist. And the thing is, these contracts still do exist. They may have fallen out of favor, the popularity that they had in the aughts, but they still exist today. I mean, Meg Thee Stallion just signed one of these a couple years ago, and that's what the underlying issue of her, contra- of her contract dispute with Carl Crawford in 1501 stemmed from. Their get That label is getting money from all different aspects of her business, and that's what she now wants to fix from the deal. Most artists now, at least the ones that are getting the education or the ones that are up on what they need to know and willing to do, willing to follow that, they know that they're advised to both to separate the management from their labels. 
especially now that everyone is thinking a bit more proactively about what their multi-hyphenate status is and what other ventures that they want to get involved with. They really only want to seek out the label for the music side of the business. Yes, they can still seek mentorship from there. Yes, they can still get a lot of their projects. But I think the ideal structure that they see is how can they get a small but nimble and trusted management team that they can have around them that can help with all of those things and the label isn't necessarily the one that they have to go to. And it's not that all labels are evil or all labels have the artist's worst interest in mind. It's just that the structure of having everything under the house of the label just makes it inevitable to have these types of challenges down the road. And if you could avoid that, you would love to avoid that. I think that it would be unlikely that there will be a quote-unquote more favorable 360 deal that labels would offer. I could see labels taking more of the Rock Nation route where they start a management side of the house and they start offering that as an offering to artists that are signed elsewhere. Because I do think that if you look at the biggest labels in the world, your Republics or your Columbias, they understand what needs to be done outside of the music perspective to help these artists grow and expand. And I and I do think that there's a lot of trust they have with their existing artists like Republic, The Weeknd, and Drake, and Post Malone, Ariana Grande. They know what to do with all these types of artists, but all those artists have their own type management teams as well. What is it going to be like for this next generation coming in? Could that be an opportunity for them? I think it I think it depends on the label and I think it's a bit of a mixed bag. You would probably see it more from an independent that ends up becoming much more established. Like it could be interesting to see what Empire ends up doing 5 years from now. I think in many ways they could probably be a more likely option for something like this than a Republic just because I feel like Republic is so much more vested within the music industry aspect. It's one of the core assets under the Universal Music Group umbrella versus Empire has really been blazing the trail itself and has been venturing into different areas. It's pioneered itself with a more transactional model that still helps artists without necessarily taking everything from them. What could that look like on the management side? I think there's some interesting options there. But I don't think we would quite see it as a 360 deal that's offered traditionally by a label to be a one size fits all for an artist because most artists would prob- that know enough would probably turn that down. And those that ended up taking it would probably have some sort of regret later on down the road. And our last question is from my guy Kelton from L.A. He wants to know what is next for Travis Scott and Fortnite? As most of you know, the Travis Scott Astronomical event was huge. They had almost 28 million people that joined in to watch the four-day event that was the Travis Scott concert event experience. You can call it a number of different things, but it was our venture into seeing what the metaverse could truly look like for one of the biggest stars in hip-hop. There's so many strong things from both that highlighted the number of people that were there that were engaged, the amount of brand and sponsorship opportunities. It helped quantify the true impact and making of this rising superstar in hip-hop. I think Fortnite has already been pushing where this can go. One of the 
lesser talked about things that happened shortly after the Travis Scott event was Fortnite releasing what they've called Party Royale. This is a different experience on the Fortnite platform that has no guns. There's no goals of mass destruction or mass murder or any of that stuff. It's just folks hanging out and partying. They had a live set from Steve Aoki and Dead Mouse. In many ways, it's similar to Second Life. If any of you remember playing Second Life from the um, mid-2000s or the late-2000s or so, it was bringing a bit of that real-life experience that people just hanging out in this meta-virtual world. What could that look like for hip-hop? And I think some of that could extend beyond artists like Travis Scott, too. If Fortnite is doing this in order to extend its audience and attract those that aren't just hardcore gamers, that could then attract the type of artists that have fan bases that aren't hardcore gamers. If any of you read the article that I wrote about Travis Scott and hip-hop and gaming, I focused on the fact that there were a lot of similarities between the Travis Scott audience and the Fortnite audience. These are two groups of audiences that enjoy sensory overload experiences. If you've ever been to a Travis Scott concert or if you've ever seen one on numerous Instagram clips, you know that there is a lot going on. And if you've ever been on Fortnite and jumped in and jumped in there, you'll see that there's a lot going on too. It's there's a bit of a freedom to explore. There's a number of things going on at the same time. And the type of person that engages in that experience is a lot alike. I mean, Travis Scott's audience at Astroworld is a predominantly male, predominantly younger audience. That 18 to 24-year-old age range is right there. And I think a lot of that is also the Fortnite However, if Fortnite Party Royale expands, that also expands to the type of artists that still have strong fan bases, but aren't necessarily in that Travis Scott niche. So I think there's a huge opportunity there, and that will be big not only for Fortnite, but it'll be big for other hip-hop artists too. And with that said, I think there's just continued opportunities for Travis Scott to continue pushing the boundaries with Fortnite. If you're Epic Games, I think you're pretty pumped about what just happened. They just crossed uh, 300 million users, which was a milestone for them. If you're Travis Scott, you're pretty excited too because you continue to push the boundaries. He's definitely one of the largest artists in hip-hop in general, even more so for the artists under 30. I think, what, did he just turn like 27 or 28 or something like that? That makes a big deal. He's speaking to a generation and is one of the ones that truly has a influential voice there. It's going to be interesting to see what happens. And that's it. Thanks, everyone, for sending in the questions. We got questions from all over the U.S. We got some representation from Canada, too. We got to get some more international, though. I got some great questions from um, some folks in Nigeria last time. Really enjoyed that. It was nice to take a step outside of the Western world. Just continue setting the questions. I'll probably set another one of these up again in a few months. Even if you don't hear from me being like, oh, hey, another Capital mailbag is coming, still send in your questions. And the best way to do it is two ways. One, if you are a Capital member, you do get priority access to this. So if you're interested, you've been enjoying the content, go to Trapital.co. You can go to the top right, click on become a Trapitalist, and you can learn a little bit more about the membership. Or if you purely just want to send in questions, shoot me a text. As I mentioned, I extended this one to folks that are part of Capital's community number. My phone number that I have is 415-234-3074. 
If you enjoyed this podcast, please tell at least one friend about this podcast. Word of mouth is still the best way to grow. Go to Apple Podcasts, go to iTunes, leave a review, rate the podcast. I will screenshot and share the podcast ratings on Twitter and Instagram. That can encourage more people to share the podcast. And if this podcast is your first introduction to Trapital, then make sure you check out the rest of the content. Go to Trapital.co. That's T-R-A-P-I-T-A-L dot C-O. Sign up for the weekly newsletter. Get all the content there. And also, shoot me a text. That's also a great way to stay in touch with Trapital content. You can text me, Dan Runcie, at 415-234-3074. Thanks again. See you next week.